I'm Vincent Price. Tonight, Sherlock Holmes invades London's dangerous underworld to track down the man with the twisted lip. As our story begins, Watson is asked to locate a Mr. Isa Whitney, an old friend who occasionally disappears on overnight binges. Whitney is an opium addict. In college, he had laced his pipe tobacco with laudanum, a tincture of opium, in an effort to reproduce the reveries he'd read about into Quincy and Coleridge. And like those earlier writers, he'd found that the practice was easier to start than to stop. During Holmes's time, many of London's fashionable set were hooked on opium as a result of having been treated with laudanum by their physicians. And while they could still legally buy laudanum at the local pharmacists, quite a few would search for greater strengths and increased dosages of the drug only available in the dangerous opium dens of the city's oriental quarter known as Limehouse. One travel guide written as late as 1957 describes the Limehouse as an area hardly suitable for unaccompanied tourists. Opium dens exist despite the vigilance of the police, but it is not wise for the visitor to see these establishments from the inside. And the same warning would apply in the 1890s when tonight's story takes place. And welcome to the LBC Irregulars, a story-by-story review of the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes series produced by Granada Television between 1984 and 1994. I'm your host, Kathy Bright. Joining me on this adventure through Sherlock Holmes is the Sherlock Holmes to my Irene Adler, Jared, the yard sale artist, Albrecht. Hello. Good evening, Jared. Good evening. As usual, I come bearing gifts. Ooh, I like gifts. What have you got for me? This time around, uh, don't take it too personally, but it is a bar of soap and a sponge. <laughs> okay. Hopefully it's smaller than a pillow. Because... No, it is, it's a big, <laughs> it's a big sponge. Giant sponge. Well, I brought you a gift as well. Oh, I brought whatever. you a new bicycle tire. I noticed that yours had a patch on it. Yeah. It needed a little work. So I bought you a new tire for your bicycle. Well, then I will retire. The old one. (laughs) (laughs) How do I do it? I don't know. (laughs) Let's introduce our guest for this evening. On this episode, as we continue our review of the third season of the Granada series, The Return of Sherlock Holmes, we decided to reach out a bit further in our podcast family and welcome writer, speaker, and podcaster extraordinaire, and from what I understand, Jared's best friend, Mr. Alan J. Porter. Good evening, Alan. How are you tonight? I'm great, Kathy. Thank you for having me on the show. I've been wanting to be on the show ever since you first mentioned <laughs> doing it. So uh, I'm delighted to be here this evening. Well, I'm excited to have you here. I feel like you're automatically the expert since your home country. I can do the accent. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's written an actual short story or two. Is it two? Yeah, it's, it is two. Yeah, I thought so. Well, why don't you tell everybody what those are? So if they want to go read those. Uh, Yeah, they're in an anthology series called The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Very imaginative title. I think I'm in volumes. I wasn't prepared for this. I think I'm in volumes six and seven. I was about to say six and seven. So (laughs) you're right. (laughs) 
what I'd like to do is find a true crime from around that period and then think how would Sherlock Holmes solve it and then sort of twist it a little bit and make it a little different. So one is the case of, I see you've got me now because I don't even have the book close to me. First one is the case of the missing pearls. And the second one is the case of the rotten corpse. But uh, yeah, one's about a, basically how can a set of pearls go missing in the mail between Paris and London? When they just disappear when at the time they were the, the most expensive jewels in the world. That's actually a, a thing that happened. And then the second one is about a murder, the murder whose defense was that they were hypnotized at the time and didn't know anything about it, which is actually also a true case. So I sort of took those two true cases and then spun them into Sherlock Holmes adventures. And I do have a third one that I have started several, I was going to say weeks, but actually several years ago now, a couple of years ago that I haven't actually got around to finishing yet, which is Sherlock Holmes on a visit to America and solving a famous case here in Austin in Texas. I will hopefully at some point get around to finishing that one. That all sounds very interesting. I think everyone should go check out those stories. As an avid eBay seller, there are so many ways those pearls could have got lost. I'm just telling you. Right <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but if, if this was when they actually had an efficient postal service. Oh. One of, the, one of the things that this used to get me, you'd watch the show and they'd write a letter and they'd put it in the mail and they'd get a response the same day. And I was like, wasn't that efficient it was actually more efficient than that in london around that time they had 10 postal deliveries a day Ooh. oh my goodness that's a lot yeah basically it was the email of the day it was the main way they communicated very complex and very efficient postal service at that point kind of like bike messengers these days in yeah. big cities yeah. like new york yeah. yeah yeah pretty much yeah they had so much mail that the mail carriers sometimes had one or even two assistants with them because they had to carry the other mail in, in separate bags and stuff because they had so much mail. And it was thought to be the safest way to actually deliver stuff was in the mail. And now, not so much. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Beads of sweat with every package I send. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. We're glad to have Alan with us here on this episode. And I think it might be time for Kathy to give us a recap on our first story. If you're not familiar with the man with the twisted lip, you might just get your ending spoiled. Dr. John Watson is visited by an old friend requesting help bringing home her husband who has been missing for 48 hours during what she believes is another one of his drug-induced orgies. Watson visits the Bar of Gold opium den and finds the missing Isa Whitney. He is astonished to also find a disguised Sherlock Holmes amidst the troubled patrons of the opium den. Holmes is there investigating the disappearance of Neville St. Clair, who was last seen by his wife in the upstairs window of this same opium den. Mrs. St. Clair, Inspector Bradstreet, and a couple of constables investigate, but find only the building bricks that St. Clair promised their children, Mr. St. Clair's clothes, and a trace of blood on a windowsill that looks out over a narrow strip of the wharf. Neither the manager, an Indian sailor, nor his only lodger, a sinister, hideous-faced cripple and professional beggar, admitted to having any knowledge of anyone else being on the premises. Did either of these men have anything to do with Neville St. Clair's disappearance? 
Will Sherlock solve this case and find Mr. St. Clair alive? Continue listening and you might get these questions answered. Excellent job, Kathy. Now it is time for the highs and lows and what those, where we each take a look at the good, the bad, the meh, whatever we're feeling on this episode. We will start with Mr. Alan J. Porter himself. Sir, you get to lead off round one. Okay, I'm going to start with a high, which is actually the opening bit with Watson receiving a guest, a lady from his past. Always wonder with Watson, he has the reputation of the ladies' man, and when he has lady visitors, you just wonder how deep that relationship is in the past. But I just thought the whole way that was handled, the whole way with Mrs. Hudson about Holmes has disappeared again for a couple of days, but they don't really, they just take it in their stride. It happens all the time. And then just the running gag when the lady actually turns up and says her husband has disappeared and Watson sort of just does that, oh, another unexplained absence type thing. I just thought that whole sequence and then Watson actually going into sort of the, the den of iniquity. And I thought Edward Hardwick did a great job of sort of showing that he felt the whole place was disgusting and he didn't really want anything to do with it, but he had a duty to be there to follow up on the promise that he'd made to his old friend to find her husband. So I I thought that whole opening sequence was, and the way they set the story up with Watson was really well done. I absolutely agree, by the way. I really like the part where, well, what should I tell Mr. Holmes if he comes back and you're not here? (laughs) Tell him I've gone missing. (laughs) Yeah. Without a trace, I think, also. <laughs> yeah. I love the fact that uh, Mrs. Hudson just came in with a um, food already packaged and stuff. He's like, <laughs> as if she knew he was just going to disappear himself. So, yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, definitely. And I also picked up on that, what you're talking about. Just that almost every iteration of Watson, you know, I've watched a lot of the 54 TV series. And, of course, this. He just has this bravery about him. Doesn't want to go to the den, like you mentioned, Alan. But he just... If he's scared, he doesn't show it. He just has this, this true bravery about him, like a soldier's bravery, which would make sense. Yeah, I was, that's actually was the point I was just going to make. It. I know they mentioned the fact that he's a, a veteran and a soldier a few times, but this was one of those occasions where you saw it coming through and it was implied without them actually explicitly talking about the fact that he was an ex-military man. There are times when his actions just show that, and I think this was one of those. Cool. And Kathy likes to keep uh, an eye on Watson. So as we get into her the first round, uh, what are your thoughts on Watson in this episode, Kathy? And then you can pull a pat double dip into a high or a lower one. Of course I will. And as usual, y'all steal my Watson watch. <laughs> it is the very first scene when he says, I quote, tell Holmes that I disappeared without a trace because that is what he always does. I also want to mention Alan mentioned how, you know, the ladies' man or whatever. Well, I know there's two theories on is Watson married? Is he single? Ladies' man. In this particular story, he is married. And the lady that comes and visits his home is a friend of Watson's wife. So I just wanted to make note that that was a little bit of a difference in the story versus the TV episode. To go along with what y'all discussed about his bravery one of my favorite scenes especially in the early part of the episode is with not even a second thought Holmes goes oh are you going to come along and he was like absolutely he didn't even question it didn't stop to think nothing I think Jared's mentioned before on other episodes this is my guy I'm going to do whatever he asked me to do bravery and loyalty definitely qualities of Watson 
I also liked while we're on Watson watch, uh, <laughs> I also liked how when Holmes pulled him in, I mean, that was a pretty good disguise for Holmes and a lot of other Watsons would not have seen through it as quickly as this Watson does. And he seemed completely charmed by it. Like, I feel like he almost was like grinning, like, oh my gosh, look at you. <laughs> Most of the other Watsons I saw would have, he would have had to say, hey, it's it's me. It's Sherlock Holmes. You know, take off the nose. Oh, look, you know, but this Watson was like, Holmes, what are you doing? You know, how much opium have you smoked? <laughs> Holmes was like, only enough to blend in. <laughs> well, and that kind of leads to, I mean, my actual really high for this episode is, I feel like Watson is very chipper in this episode. He smiles a lot. And I do get, these episodes are very similar to me. They both have cab rides out to the country. They both involve missing people. So I'm, I may get the episodes confused on certain parts, but I just feel like we get Chipper Watson in both of these episodes, actually, which I'm a fan of Watson. So I enjoy that quite a bit. And I think Edward Hardwick does a great job at portraying serious, but yet also charmed by Sherlock Holmes. Well, for my first round, I'll lead with a low so I can bring a high into the other one. And it's really no fault of the producers, the actors or anything. I think it's really the source material on this one. I'm not a super smart guy, but I'm like, if you saw a dude up in the window that was clearly your husband and you went up there and all that was there was a dirty beggar, pretty sure that dirty beggar is your husband. <laughs> Like, I was just like, the episode as well, it's not a really a knock on the show. It's well executed. It's fun to watch. They really do a great job on the makeup. So I can turn this low into a high because it is a great makeup job. But I'm just like, really not a lot of other things it could be. And they tried. They're like, oh, there's a little blood on the window. And we found this way to jack out in the water. I'm like, no. It's the same. <laughs> I don't know if I'm being too hard on it or whatever. But no, you're not. You sort of took what was actually going to be my low because this story always annoyed the hell out of me because <laughs> Holmes is an idiot. In yeah, the it takes um, him a while. <laughs> it's so freaking obvious. Either this adaptation or reading the original short story, I always get annoyed by Holmes in this story, particularly when there's that point when they're in the country house that, and they're talking about the fact that the, you know, the beggar's been in jail for like two days. And then he's like, and why haven't we heard from your husband for two days? Because like, <laughs> he's in jail. You just mentioned it. Um, so, yeah, it. As you said, very well acted, great makeup stuff. But just this story, nothing to do with this adaptation, but this story I find is one of Conan Doyle's most annoying because Holmes is so out of character in terms of his deductive skills because it is so flipping obvious right from the start what the solution is. And my low point about the exact same thing is the scene at the end. The way it was written in the story played much better than how they filmed it. In the story, it's... Holmes like sitting there scrubbing the man's face down. But in the this version, it's like he kind of did it to himself and was like shocked. Oh no, all my makeup's come off. You did it yourself. That scene, the way it was filmed, totally it, bothered me. It, my brother Jason, and I talked about this last night. We recorded something else, but he had just watched this episode as well. And he got a kick out of like the over dramatized coming in with the it's a little bit laughable. I saw what they were trying to do. They're trying to make a moment out of it. But anyways, let's go ahead. We're firing all kinds of shots here. Let's keep them firing, going around two. And Alan, take a lead on this, if you wish. Or I can say, well, I, you, you just stole my what was going to be my round two. So let me <laughs> have a think about it. 
Actually, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go to what you mentioned, the makeup. Other than the fact that there's no way that the guy could have put that amount of makeup on in that sort of time frame, but the makeup was actually really... <laughs> Did it sort of remind you of a Sir Roger Moore? Ah, yeah, yeah, I was about to say that. And a clown makeup. Clown yeah, makeup. Clown. Yeah. Let's not get into that one. But I sent a message to Jared and I was like, I feel like Sherlock Holmes went to the Roger Moore school of costuming. Yeah. <laughs> movie movie makeup. So well, it's not so much the Sherlock Holmes one in the opium den, which was quite good. Neville Sinclair putting all that makeup on in the time between his wife seeing him and uh, getting up the ch- stairs was just yeah, impossible, especially to that degree. But I actually really liked the establishment of him as the beggar in the street with him, you know, quoting Shakespeare and Wordsworth and stuff like that. And also the banter between him and the beggar and the police officer, the police officer knew him and was getting these quotes wrong when he was trying to guess what, what source of the quotes he was throwing out. And I actually also liked the fact that Early on, they sort of focused on one of the people walking past him in the street. And you think, okay, he's going to be important to the story. But he turned out to be a connection of Holmes's, but completely tangential to the main story. You saw him later, but he actually didn't play any particular part in this story. So I like the way they set it up. I like the way they set up the character of the beggar. Once you got into the bit with his wife seeing him, and it's like, okay, now I'm going to get annoyed. But the Holmes opening, the setting up of the beggar, the way they, they sort of set him up in there. His character and the relationship with the police, I liked a lot. Yeah, I agree. I think that that was really, really well done. All that beggar stuff. I mean, dude had it down to a science. Uh, <laughs> he had it down to a business. Kathy, you're around. Kind of want to bring up in this round, I said that I felt like we kind of got a chipper Watson or a charmed Watson, so to speak. And as Alan said, maybe story-wise, this wasn't the best, but I feel like character-wise... I really, really enjoyed this episode. I felt like we got a softer Holmes. There were some very intimate, sweet moments that I don't know that I've seen before in this adaptation. When he is at the home of Mrs. St. Clair and she begs him, just please help help me find my husband. And the look he kind of gives her as she walks off and she's extremely upset. He just looked like he had a softness. Usually he doesn't He's so flippant about other people's emotions or what they're going through and just seems to be completely void of understanding those feelings, right? And then also when the little girl comes in the room, when he's in his meditative state and the little girl walks in and it was just such a sweet, soft, gentle moment. He didn't roll his eyes at her or be bothered by the fact. Like it was just a genuinely sweet moment and I really liked it. So I feel like we got a, a softer homes in this episode, and I enjoyed that. Good point. I love it. I have a question. It seems like every Victorian household has at least two fully furnished guest rooms for Holmes and Watson <laughs> to stay overnight and ex- who just turn up uninvited, and <laughs> they have guest rooms with pajamas and dressing gowns and everything ready for them. It seems to be a staple of every Victorian house that they, they stop by is they have Lovely furnished guest rooms ready and waiting for them. <laughs> I just assume that's all all of London. I figure <laughs> I can stop by anybody's house and be like, hey, uh, let me get some PJs and crash <laughs> your guest room. <laughs> Certain that'll work out for me. Um, as the closing of all this discussion, I'll end with a high like I promised. I really enjoyed the smaller part actors, especially I think his name was Mr. Alaska, the uh, Indian sailor. 
I thought he played it really well. I just thought he was a good actor. <laughs> like he, he, I totally had to Google what that word meant, by the way. Which word? The Alaska or whatever he is. I, I thought they were saying Alaska, like his name was Alaska. I know. I thought his name, in the, when I was reading the short story, I thought that was his name. And I'm like, what is this? Luckily, you know, I'm digital. So I hit it and I'm like, look up. And it's like, oh, an Indian sailor. Makes sense. Oh, it's a term. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was the dude's name. We're I did too. On the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he's a Alaska. Yes. Okay. I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming in a vote. Anyway, the actor was quite good. He gave his lines really well. Oh, you know, she said, you told me there's nobody up. He's just a beggar. He's, he's nobody. You know, like he played that real kind of smarmy, I'm smoothing things over kind of guy. And uh, I kind of liked him. He's one of those well-known character actor faces. You see him in a lot of British TV stuff from wow. the yeah, so 70s they're not, they're and 80s. They're not scraping 80s. the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> no, not at all. But unfortunately, I can't remember his name, which is not good. But, uh, I can tell yeah, you what his name isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mr. Alaska, yeah. Do you think his first name is Baked? <laughs> Baked Alaska, <laughs> certainly. Uh, his delicious. name is Albert Moses. Thank oh. you. Thank you. Yes. Well yeah. done, Kathy. And his, his character name is Thug. Thug. <laughs> That's you not that. He wasn't a thug. Yeah, he wasn't. No, he's a. That's just if on you that look at it, website, by the way. The in, Arthur Conan Doyle Encyclopedia, it has him listed as Thug. It's just interesting because if you look at it, by the way, that Neville St. Clair wants you kind of to with his haphazard plot to cover himself, you think he's a nefarious guy. But in reality, he's covering for Neville Sinclair. Like, he's in on it with Neville. Like, he's helping this guy. He's not a bad dude at all, really. Which is kind of funny when you think about it. Because your impression after the show is over is like, oh, you know, he's a thug. He was legitimately trying to help Neville. <laughs> so, But he also he also runs an opium den, so... Does he? Yeah, I thought he was running at that boarding house. It was the same building. The oh. opium den is underneath. It's in the basement of that same building. Oh, I didn't put that together. I thought that uh, I'm pretty sure the guy whose name I thought was Alaska was just running. <laughs> running a and that house. may only be from the short story. Maybe that's a detail in the story that they don't talk about in the episode. I got to really start paying attention. <laughs> okay, you're out. Your powers of observation failed you, Jared. So there's a shocker. <laughs> Which Bond movie is he in? What? Oh, snap. Don't tell me. Is he an octopusy? Nope. Oh, I thought he might have been in the gang, you know, with the yo-yo saw. Yeah. Oh, no. is he in? I'm going with Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, he is in Octopussy, but that wasn't the one I was going for. He's, actually oh, been, in two oh, He's been in two Bond movies. What? That's was, crazy. What's the other one? The Spy Who Loved Me. He played a barman in The Spy Who Loved Me. Ah, very cool. I love the Bond connection. Very cool. All right. Do we have any other burning thoughts before we move on? The only thing I want to mention is I really enjoyed the scene with him and Bradstreet. You know, we always joke about how he is with Inspector Lestrade. He seemed to very much respect Inspector Bradstreet. That whole scene that I didn't realize happened before he ever went to the opium den when they were kind of going back and forth. And I felt like Holmes was really listening to this guy and was like, oh, well, you know, that could be it. And like, it was much more of a team effort than how Holmes normally is, where he's like, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm the only one that can figure this out. I really I enjoyed that scene. I like the banter between those two. 
I wonder if it was because he was being cooperative, because Lestrade kind of has that thing where he's always trying to prove himself. Oh, you could be right. <laughs> so maybe it was due to his level of cooperation. I'm just speculating. Due to his level of cooperation, Holmes was a little nicer to him. Yeah. That's a very should, good observation. I actually just did think of one thing. When they're in the leaving the opium den, Watson asked if Holmes was there looking for Sinclair, and he said, no, I was here looking for an enemy, and they never followed up on that. True. So why was he in the opium den in the first place? We never really found out. We never did. Get, get side railed, whatever the heck he was doing. Yeah. Well, and that makes me question the setup scene with the lady coming to visit Watson was a completely different story. And it really had nothing to do with the missing person that Holmes ended up looking for. So it was a bit confusing because... Two missing people. So now we're yeah, dealing with point. three missing people over both episodes. It's just a little confusing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also need to bring out in this episode when Holmes realizes how foolish he's been. I think he said, I've been as blind as a mole. And in the next one, he's been as blind as a beetle. He's, okay. he's blind as a lot of animals in this two <laughs> I remember making note of the beetle, but not the mole. Yeah. Point. Anyways, uh, with that, uh, Kathy, I think you have things to do. Now that we're done with our discussion of this episode, what did we think? Well, we just happened to have a system in place that helps us rate each episode. On a scale of one to five pipes, five, you loved it. It solved your mystery. Aha. Four, it was really good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Three, it was all right. Yeah. Two, you did not like it. Mm -mm, mm -mm. One, you hated it. It threw you off of Rockenbach Falls. <sighs> so how would you rate this story, Alan? You may guess from my little screed earlier about how much this story annoys me that it's going to be the low end. I think it's actually going to be a two for me, story-wise. Like I said, not the adaptation, the actors, they did a great job. The fact that Holmes is as blind as a mole, beetle, whatever, almost <laughs> right from the very beginning. The resolution with the makeup, the unanswered questions about what Holmes was doing in the opium den. There's just too many issues, I think, with this story. I still think the adaptation was very well done. I think it's the source material for me that really knocks this one down. Not Conan Doyle's best. I will accept that. I feel like for me, the characters overshadowed the story. I always loved the relationship and the banter between Watson and Holmes. Holmes throws shade at Watson. Watson laughs it off. It just brings me joy. So I, I think I'm going to give this episode a three. Jared, what about you? I'm going to give it a three as well. I think as far as the production, the performances and all that, four. I think as far as the source material and a mystery so easy to solve that Jared could solve it, it's a two. So land in the middle. Call it a three. I like that. I was going to say, so we're both at a three and a half then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put fractions in my mouth. <laughs> now that our ratings are in, let's hear some final thoughts from Vincent Price on the episode the man with the twisted lip. Tonight's episode is not the first time that Holmes has been able to fool even his best friend with his intricate disguises. In the final problem, Holmes's impersonation of an Italian priest was so convincing that Watson failed to see through it. 
And three years later, after his struggle with Moriarty at Reichenbach Falls, Holmes returned to London as an elderly deformed bookseller. Again, the good doctor was fooled. Holmes's wardrobe for these disguises must have been very extensive, for we are told that he had at least five small refuges in different parts of London where he could pop in and change his costumes and his makeup completely. Conan Doyle got the idea for Holmes's disguises from the first chief of the French Surete, Eugène Vidocq. Vidocq was famous for being able to transform himself to suit any occasion. At times he would add several inches to his height or stain his face with walnut liquor to change his complexion. He could also manufacture false blisters and create leg iron marks on his shins if necessary. Next time Holmes tries to unravel the puzzle of a sinister kidnapping in The Adventure of the Priory School. Until then, for Mystery, I'm Vincent Price. Good night. But wait, there's more. Here's Kathy to give us the recap on our second episode, The Priory School. Again, if you're not familiar with the story, you might get your ending spoiled. But wait, before I read the synopsis, let's listen to... Vincent Price introduced our next episode, The Priory School. Good evening and welcome to Mystery. I'm Vincent Price. Tonight, Sherlock Holmes gets to the bottom of a sinister kidnapping in the adventure of The Priory School. What kind of formal education did Sherlock Holmes have? Well, the tales don't give us any real information about his schooling, and Holmes fans have debated the subject for years, but here's what we do know. Holmes was a descendant of country squires, and probably had an education befitting that heritage. And during what he referred to as his two years at college, a classmate's father encouraged young Sherlock to make a profession out of the puzzle solving that had become his hobby. In one of the stories, Holmes tells us that during my last years at the university, there was a good deal of talk about myself and my methods. Well, I'll bet there was. <laughs> but the name of the school and how long he spent there remain mysteries. Nevertheless, Holmes told Watson, education never ends. It is a series of lessons with the greatest for the last. Well, he is about to learn quite a lesson right now in the adventure of the Priory School. An unkempt and exhausted Thornycroft Huxtable suddenly and dramatically stumbles into 221B. The founder and principal of the Priory School has come to seek the help of Holmes and Watson with locating a missing student, which just so happens to be the son of the Duke of Holderness. Along with Lord Salter, Heidegger, the German master, has also gone missing. As Mr. Huxtable offers what details he can of the case, Holmes quickly discounts that Heidegger could have carried the boy off on the one missing bicycle, or that the bicycle was a diversion as they would have hidden two bicycles in that scenario instead of just the one. 
Although Holmes was disappointed with these original theories, he thought they were a good start to the investigation. So off went Holmes and Watson to the school to help find the missing Lord. Will they find Lord Salter? Was the German master involved in the disappearance? Keep listening as we all find out the answers to this mystery. Nine. Now it is time to get into our highs, lows, what those. Let's each take a look at the good, the bad, the meh, whatever we thought about it. We will start with Alan. I am actually going to give a high to the locations in this. I think this was beautiful to look at. It's great stuff. Personally, that's actually the area not far from where I grew up. So I actually been to a lot of those locations. The, the baronial mansion, I immediately recognized it. It's Chatsworth House. My parents and I used to go there two or three times a year to hang out on the grounds and picnics and do the tours of the house and stuff. So I actually know that baronial uh, stately home pretty well and recognized it immediately. So it had a lot of childhood memories for me seeing that because, of course, the show was filmed in Manchester, which is where I grew up. And a lot of these things were around the Manchester area. Chatsworth, there was there. Other parts were filmed at Lyme Park. I also recognized some of the interior shots was actually Cheatham's Library in Manchester. So I recognized a lot of the locations. But even that aside, I just thought it really showed that area, the Peak District area of Derbyshire and sort of the south and east of Manchester. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why he's on the show tonight. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, it was nice to see it, but I thought they incorporated it into the story exceptionally well as well from a production point of view. Yeah, I also went to a British fee-paying school, but it wasn't a boarding school like that one. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It just gave me the warm and cozies, if you like. Kidnapping and murder and stuff aside, but right. other, than, other than that, yes, it <laughs> gave me the warm and cozies watch it, watching it. So uh, I really enjoyed just seeing it. And it's nice to see stuff outside of the studio as well. Holmes and Watson sort of, you know, racing across the countryside and being out among the cows and the... The horses and stuff. Yeah, it was it was cool. I can relate. Uh, Alan, we watched an episode not too long ago where they went to the Swiss Alps, and I'd been to that location before. And Kathy loves it when I bring that up. Mm-hmm, sure do. All right. You know what else Kathy loves? Kathy loves it when I steal her Watson Watch stuff right before she's about to say it. But it's it has to be said. My high point of this episode has got to be when Holmes is lost in thought. And <laughs> Watson says, hey, I think there's like a little place we get something to eat right up the road. And Holmes gives him nothing. And then a few minutes later, Holmes comes out of it. And he's like, oh, you're probably hungry. I think there's a place to eat right up the road. And Watson is so used to Holmes. He's just like, yeah, let's go. Let's, let's go. Let's just go to the place. I literally just told you that. It bounced right off of you. <laughs> and then he acted like he thought of it. And I just thought that was brilliant. It really shows the relationship between the two guys. And thusly is my favorite part of this episode. Although there's, I have other highs. And I just love to steal Kathy's Watson watch before she's able to talk about it. So, Kathy, what do you got for Watson watch? There's two in particular. The beginning of the episode when the principal is asking for help and Holmes is listing the reasons why. <laughs> and Watson's over there is going, what is he talking about? I'm not in any scarlet fever. Like, oh, he's right. like, he's totally lying All the reasons to this why guy. they couldn't help him. He was, he was making <laughs> and, things up. He's totally making it up. And then... When they were 
reviewing the maps of the area and they stand up and Holmes pats Watson on the shoulder. He's like, you did good. He goes, oh, and dinner's almost ready that you should be happy to know that. So it's like, even he knows that Watson loves to eat. (laughs) He's got Watson's like eating schedule. Exactly. (laughs) This is such a heavy Watson episode for me. Even the fact that once they finally found the boy, he was the one chasing after him to try to save the boy. And the scenes where Watson is running across the moor and he's like getting all breathless. Holmes seems not bothered at all, but Watson's just like, (sighs) he's over there about to die. (laughs) Speaking of Watson about to die, I got to add this to Watson watch when he eats the food. I was, that's what I was going to go. As, as you mentioned his, his eating schedule, the white pie, which basically I think was turnips and sweets in a horrible Ugh. pastry He's, case. He and, did say it was disgusting, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, Holmes is like, what's it like? And he's like, disgusting. And then he, but he still keeps plowing away at it. Uh, it was like, yeah. Gotta have that energy if you're going to run around the moors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, turnips and sweet baked in a pie. Yeah. Disgusting. <laughs> well, it's you're on the mic anyway, Alan. It's beginning of round two. What you got? The detective work in this one, unlike the previous one, this is actually one of my favorite home styles because there's, there's a real detective angle to it. The thing with the, you know, figuring out where they went, figuring out that, uh, you know, they took the bicycle, that uh, the kid was lured out, that the, how the German master probably got involved in following him, the fact they went across the moors, tracing the bicycle tracks, you know, one stops and then another one starts, figuring that out. The stuff with the disguised cloven hoof marks, the horseshoes, horseshoes that are meant to look like cattle. Just the way it all came together at the end as well. It was a real piece of detective work, I thought, in this one. So I just loved it from that point of view of him actually bringing all those pieces together uh, to figure it out. I thought it was uh, really well done. And when he's running down the halls, old shoes, new nails, old shoes, new nails. Yes, yes. He gets so excited in explaining it. Like he explains it really fast. And I had to like, what? Why is that important? Like I I keep going back and I eventually figured out what Alan has clearly figured out that they were basically covering the track, trying to make like cattle have gone through there. Yeah. And then the Duke says something about, well, there'll be no cattle out at this time of the year because it's too cold and stuff like, yeah. Then I've been blind as a beetle. A beetle, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that any of the beetles were blind, but I don't know any beetles experts yeah. to ask. Well, if only you knew somebody who knew something about beetles. It's a little something. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a different kind of beetle. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> These are not named Ringo, John, Paul. Who am I forgetting? George. 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 Everybody forgets George. I'm sleep deep rest because I've been listening to the, to the program. <laughs> All right, so this was definitely a big high for me because I actually paused the episode. Because originally, I think the bounty to finding that kid was 2,000 pounds. Anybody else pause to see how much that check was for that the Duke gave him at the end? It was 12. But no, the the total was actually 6,000 pounds. It's 6,000. I yeah. thought at the beginning it started as two, and then Holmes demanded six. And he was like, I'm giving you six. And he ends up giving him 12. I wonder if we're confusing the short story, Alan, because in the short story, it's 5,000 if you find the boy and another 1,000 yeah. pounds if you can I, give me the name could, of who. Could be. Yeah. No, that was it. It was, it was, five, it was five for finding him, and then there was a, an extra 1,000. I couldn't remember where the extra 1,000 was, but the grand total was six, yeah. Maybe yeah. if he was still alive. Yeah, I, I think whatever. it was 
finding the name of the people mm-hmm. that did this. Yeah. Regardless, <laughs> I want to focus on the 12,000 pounds. There's a lot around that that I like. Again, I paused it so I could see what was on the check. I was like, 12,000 pounds. First of all, 12,000 pounds in 18, whatever. He's basically set for life. And it's funny because we've asked and discussed on previous episodes and other, sh- we've done a lot of other Sherlock Holmes stuff on the network. Like a lot of times he takes these cases for poor people that can't pay. You know, he takes a case. I remember one of the TV 54 series he takes a case from a little boy who's got like literally a pound to give him. And he takes the case and it's just magical and wonderful. And we, we've asked on other episodes, like, how does he really pay the rent? You know, because he's always taking these cases that don't even pay. Occasionally, he'll do one that has like a reward for finding a, you know, blue carbuncle or whatever. But 12,000 pounds. This is the only case he needs to like, ever solve. He, so calls that, it, he calls it a king's ransom. King's ransom. Yeah. And that's going to be my, my following point. Because, again, I paused it. I looked. I was like, that's a lot of money. And I love the way, I don't know if you guys know this, but Jeremy Brett's a good actor. I love, I love the way he plays it. Even Holmes, who doesn't like get giddy or whatever, it flashes in his eyes that he's like, in this Holmesian way, you have to watch it, folks, to really experience it. But in Holmesian way, just with facial expressions, he basically says, get ready for the bleep button, Kathy. Holy <laughs> Like in that very stoic Holmes way, the way he communicates it just through his face, and he makes a couple of like noises. I think he's like, hmm, <laughs> or something like that. I just thought that moment was absolutely magical. So do you want to know what that is today? It's probably a lot of money. <laughs> what is it? Two million eighteen thousand seven hundred and twenty-three pounds. In pounds? Yes. So it's even more dollars. <laughs> even more dollars, yeah. Oh, 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 oh my goodness. I told you. All those times we wondered, like, how does he make rent? Now we know. This yeah, I mean there are, there are certain right cases here. like Earlier ones with the Irene Adler case with Scandal in Bohemia when the, the king yeah. gives him a whole ton of money. There's ones where he does take very large check that then covers, and plus he comes from a fairly well-to-do family anyway. So That's what I was going to ask. If he you know, I think, I think he has a private income. I actually didn't know that. Okay, so I know that he comes from a fairly well-to-do family in Sherlock, you know, Cumberpatch and all that. In Doyle's homes, I've read them all, but it's been years. I must have forgotten or missed it, but I didn't realize he came from money. I think it's implied or it's sort of just taken as given, because if you think about what his brother does and... That's true. His brother's like super well-respected. Yeah. That one little moment, and I know we've spent a lot of time talking about just the sum of money that I paused to see what it was, and then you just told us, gosh, how much it's worth. And just, Brett just plays it so perfect. He plays a lot of stuff perfect, which is, I could watch that just that few seconds over and over again. And just, it's a masterclass in that. I love the fact they insisted that the check was crossed as well. What does that mean? <laughs> I was about to ask the same question. <laughs> it means basically you can't cash it. You used to in the, in the UK, it meant that you can't cash it at a bank counter. It has to be paid into the account of the the individual at the branch that's mentioned because he crossed it and put it in specific branch. So basically you can only take it to that branch and they will not cash it. They will pay it directly into the account of the named person. It was an added layer of security. Okay. Cause they were very deliberate about saying that. And I was like, okay, I got to remember to ask Alan about this. What does this mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I just kind of assumed he made it 12 versus six because it was for Holmes and Watson. But maybe that was just too simple of an answer. I don't know. I think, all right, we can all speculate here. I feel like he doubled it 
A, because he was really happy to have his son back. And B, because my pet theory is that he was basically rewarding Holmes for doing what needed to be done for the Duke, like emotionally. Like Holmes made him face the fact that this guy he's been taking care of his whole life is not a good guy. And and that's a burden that he is finally relieved of. And I think that went into the doubling. That's just my theory. If anybody else has got one. No, I mean, that's that's the way I took it was he was just so pleased with the result, but actually, you know, Holmes went beyond that, helped him face some problems and actually also did it in such a way that didn't make a public scandal out of it as well. He sort of handled it in a respectful way. Uh Um, So, yeah, I I think it was just a a gratitude doubling of the of the fee. And I I love how when Holmes was placed in front of a duke or was it the, the king of Sweden with the Bohemia one or like. These super high level people. He doesn't care. He's the same guy, whether he's in front of that Duke or whether he's in front of the man with the twisted lip. He just doesn't care. And I love it. <laughs> I, I love that about the character too. Hey, everybody puts their pants on the same way one yeah. leg at a time, you know? Oh, like you want me to sugarcoat your news? No, yeah. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kathy. I have taken a long time before you get to your final thoughts. Uh, go ahead. You were talking about the facial expressions with Jeremy Brett. And I've mentioned this in another episode. I still think sometimes the way they film that does a disservice. I understand at some moments we need to have that super close focused on the eyes, but he does. We know that Jeremy Brett is a flamboyant in the way he acts on this show as Sherlock. But I feel like we lose so much of his hand gestures because they're too tight on just his face. That's and fair. I can't, I can't remember if it was this episode or the man with the twisted lip, but he just does these hand movements. And I'm like, I feel like it might be more powerful if they just zoomed out just a couple of inches and show us a little more of that space. But that's just a little nitpick. What I, I actually think it's cool that you're paying attention to the craft of filmmaking and how zoomed in and out they, they are, because I, I can't speak for Alan, but I think I can. I think we get lost in the Holmes adventureness of it. And the fact that you're looking at how it is shot I, is it's impressive. Well, I watch it multiple times. Like I watch it initially just for the overall feel of that. And then I try to pay attention to little things like the shot of him walking down the corridor in the school where it's just his silhouette, the arched hallway. I just thought that was a beautiful shot. That's all I've got for now. All right, that closes out the second round. Who's got stuff still burning on their brain? Alan, you got anything? I actually love the scene where they went into the bedroom with the two boys next to the Lord's bedroom. You learned so much about those two kids, their relationship, and the fact that they knew that the other kid was unhappy but sort of kept it to themselves. Just the interchange there with, you know, they weren't going to say anything and then one starts talking about the other guy, the other kid. And I don't know, I just, maybe school memories, I don't know. But it, it just seemed very real to me. That, uh, and they didn't that do it in a mean-spirited way. No, not at all. Like they no. would now, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually impressed with Holmes, because as you mentioned earlier, Kathy, he's not one to care about decorum. And he was actually a little bit tender with the kids, even though yeah. there was a couple of points where Watson kind of interjected. Like, when Holmes was done with him, he was just done. Yeah. And then Watson was the one that kind of leaned in. Thanks for your time, boys. You know, all that stuff. But Holmes was a little he, better he, with them than usual. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, he coaxed 
out what he wanted to find out out of them, but he did it in a very gentle, supportive way, I felt. Very, I, very and that's not exactly I, Holmes. <laughs> I feel like he was like that in both of these episodes. That's why I said in the first one, he, I just, he just felt more tender in these two episodes. He wasn't as dismissive. I felt like he respected other people's opinions. His normal characteristic is very, I'm the only one that knows what I'm doing. <laughs> Except you know? for um, Huxtable. Who was throwing out theories and and he was just shooting the holes in those theories as fast as he could. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I gotta mention that was my other favorite, much more Holmesian thing. It's like Huxtable came in in a huff and he passed out. And when he woke up, Holmes was like, basically was like, Hey, I I rifled through your pockets while you were (laughs) you were (laughs) and guy was like, "Ah, That's cool. (laughs) Like Holmes just I gotta find out what this guy's doing here. I'm not gonna wait till he wakes up. Go through his pockets. Holmes doesn't care. I like that. I think the only other thing I wanted to mention, you know, I like to give some of the differences between the TV adaptation and the short story is in the short story, the German master. How did he die in the TV episode? I'm not sure they explicitly said they found his body yeah. on the rocks. and I think it- they did because it was in the short story. He is hit over the head with. He has a a gash on his head or something. I I felt like it was different in the short story than, or no, I take that back. It was how they found him. Watson it was like on the some comment about yeah. It was on the pathway, he, like around the bend of one of the brick wall kind of things, versus on that big rock formation that was in the short story. One of the differences in the man with the twisted lip in the TV show. It was Holmes that mentioned the the compensation of the crippled man, like how he would overcompensate with strength in other parts of his body due to his crippledness. But in the short story, it was actually Watson that makes that makes that known, not Holmes. So I just wanted to throw that out. And I want to throw out the fact that every time they mentioned Neville St. Clair. I thought of Timothy Dalton and the Rocketeer because that was the name of his character in that movie. <laughs> Good catch. So it was. I did not know that. Who's this Timothy Dalton you speak of? Uh, enough of this. You know what? It's your turn to talk. You got to do the do the scores. Okay. Oh, and every time they mentioned Dr. Huxtable in the second one, I just, Bill Cosby, I couldn't help it <laughs> with his, with his colorful sweaters. <laughs> That's a wrap on the Priory School. What did we think of this episode? As a reminder, we have a system in place that helps us rate each episode. On a scale of one to five pipes, five, you loved it. It solved your mystery. Four, it was really good. Uh uh Three, it was all right. Two, you didn't like it. Uh -uh. Uh -uh. One, you hated it. It threw you off of Reichenbach Falls. Uh How would you rate this story, Alan? As I said, this is actually one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes stories, unlike the other one. And I thought this was a great adaptation. And just the way it was filmed, where it was filmed, it's a full five pipes for me on this one. (laughs) That's a lot of pressure, Jared. I tell you what. (laughs) Man, Alan just wrote a 12,000-pound check to this episode. (laughs) Yes, he did. Because my initial thought was out of four. But Alan's just about got me convinced. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm going to call it 4.5. Kathy, what do you got? Nobody said we could do half points on this Yeah, show. we're not allowed to. I was trying to slip one past the goalie there. It's my show. I can do what I want. Ooh, Kathy's getting sassy, Kathy. <laughs> well, I mean, if we can't do halvesies, I'm totally cool with doing quarters. <laughs> so we're not going down that rabbit hole. Four and a quarter. Four. I keep trying this on the live streams, and y'all aren't understanding my joke. It's not halvesies. It's quarters. No, no. All right. Here's my actual answer. I'm going to give this one four strong pipes. I'll be like, Pat, I'm going to give it four strong pipes. I like this one a lot. You know, for me, I think we covered this episode already, Kathy. The the five for me, I love the blue carbo. That's my five level right now. This one came really close. I think my biggest challenge, the only reason I don't go to the full five, and it's kind of not fair because I did address it. Like we got all the way to the end and I kept going, okay, but why? There's no ransom. What is his end game? And at the end, they were like, well, I guess his end game was, you know, power over me. And I was like, yeah, seems lame. Like, <laughs> why don't you just have him killed? <laughs> you're, the, you're the Duke, you know. I don't know. I, that part just bugged me. Like, they went through all this. And finally, at the end of the episode, Holmes was like, you know, even Holmes was like, but why? <laughs> why is he? Why is this guy kidnapping? It just his motivation seemed like he was mad. He was grumpy. I don't know. The only thing that holds it back from the five. I liked it a lot, though. All right. I guess it's on me now. Hmm. I originally thought that I liked the man with the twisted lip better because there seemed to be a little more fun jovialness in both of their characters. But for some reason, I mean, I watch for the mysteries, right? But I end up focusing and determining how I like the episode based on the interaction with Watson and Holmes. I'm just so character focused and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. had so much good Watson in this episode. I felt like he was a bit more involved than normal. Like he, I felt like they were actually moving even more so to a team versus a detective and his sidekick. The Watson's technically the one that found the cow prints, the horseshoes, whatever it was in. I just, yeah, he's the one that found the hoof prints in the home, and he tried to get Holmes' attention, but, you know. You bring up a good was. point about characterization, though, because we just talked about how a little softer he was in the last episode, dealing with people, Holmes, you know, and how he dealt with the kids better than maybe he would have. Because if you think back to those early episodes, I distinctly remember the one where Holmes is like, he's rapid fire questioning like this. I think she was a maid at the house. And she was clearly overwhelmed. And Watson had to whisper into Holmes' ear. And then Holmes was like, oh, yes. Would you like to sit down? And I feel like there's development there. Like you were just saying, Watson's getting smarter and Holmes is getting better with people. And now that we're watching that, I'm starting to feel that that's intentional. And I do like that. So because of that, I believe I'm going to rate this episode for pipes. Not too shabby. It did very well. I totally get why Alan would go with a five, though, especially if it has those nostalgia memories. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that probably the, the fifth vote is the nostalgia vote. Had, had they gone to a Burger King? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it was just missing the Burger King on top of the moors there. <laughs> and had I ever had the opportunity to be on those moors in person, I would probably give it a five as well. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, that, look, that place looks incredible. We're, we're both jealous of Alan on this one. Now that we have rated this episode, let's hear some final thoughts from Vincent Price on the episode, The Priory School. We 
we've mentioned here before that Holmes worked for the love of his art rather than for the acquisition of wealth. However, in tonight's episode, you may have noticed that even though the agreed-upon reward for the case was £6,000, the Duke handed Holmes a check for £12,000. It's been suggested by more than one speculative reader that the Duke was offering Holmes a bribe to keep the kidnapping scandal a secret and maintain the privacy which he valued above all else. Whatever the motivation for the amount, Holmes gladly accepted it with more than his usual amount of relish. One Holmes scholar has pointed out that perhaps he had good reason. The British government in 1901, the year the adventure took place, had raised the income tax from one shilling to one and tuppence on the pound. Well, his reward tonight, along with what he earned for his services to several crowned heads of Europe, must certainly have provided enough for him to retire to his beekeeping in Sussex, which is what he eventually did do. Next time, believe it or not, Holmes tangles with the mafia as he tries to solve the adventure of the six Napoleons. Until then, for mystery, I'm Vincent Price. Good night. Before we ride off in our handsome cab for this episode, let's thank the Crusaders Club members who help pay the rent here at 221B. They're 12,000 pounds per month. (laughs) (laughs) These are the fine folks who have joined our crusade. They enjoy exclusive access to special long box episodes, voting to help determine show content, raffle prizes, special live streams that only they get access to, priority seating on podcast episodes. There's a lot to like. And these are the folks who are liking that stuff. Angelica Wolf. Oh. Auburn Elvis. Bill Beard. Blast it or stash it. Braxton Underwood. Captain Entropy. Clinton Robeson. Dave Collins, Battlewagon. Gary Viola. Gene Hendricks. Gerald Green. Jason Keane. Jason Lady. Jeremy L. Jim Jarman, Jim Jarman, Jim Jarman, Jim Jarman. I hope you like Jim Jarman too. Jim Meal. Joe Thomas. John Watson. Love that name. Josh Strickland. Candace Ward. Captivating Kathy Wright, the MVP. That's me. That's you. Mark Ross, aka Cluck Trent. Maxwell Traber. Matt and Lizzie Passo. Michael Wagner. Miranda W. P.D. Devins. Paul Hicks. Rick from Jeff and Rick Present. Rob Morgan. Samantha Maney. Sean Urbanski. Spidey67. Spreadsheet. Steve Cronin. Tim Price. Tony Pennington. And Toronto Cop. If we miss you on our list, of course, we apologize. Keep in mind, we record these episodes well in advance early. So if you're recent addition, we will add you soon. No worries. You can always let us know that we missed you by sending you an email to contact at longboxcrusade.com and we will square it all away. As a reminder, you can become a Crusaders Club member by heading over to patreon.com slash Crusade For as little as just $1 a month, you get access to the amazing world of Crusaders Club. Come check it out. And if you don't have any scratch, but you want to support the show, we are on YouTube. We'd love to get a subscription from you on YouTube. We are Longbox Crusade. Offer not available in all areas, especially for Jason. That will wrap up another LBC Irregulars and these two Sherlock Holmes stories. We'd love to hear from you if you are familiar with any variation of Sherlock Holmes, including the Granada adaptations. 
You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Longbox Crusade. Our email address, contact at longboxcrusade.com. You can also contact us by phone at 707-532-5269. That's 707-532-LBOX. Pick Pick up up the the phone. phone. Thank you, Kathy. If you want to chat with me personally, I can be found at Yard Sale Artist, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and is all at Yard Sale Artist. You can check out my artwares at www.theyardsaleartist.com. Kathleen. I can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at AUKathy2418. And that's Kathy with a K. Alan, where can listeners find you? You can find me at my personal website, alanjporter.com. And if you go to the links page, you can find links to all the places that I hang out on the web. Oh, and by the way, I got the name of the books wrong that my Sherlock Holmes stories are in. It is not the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. It is, in fact, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, volumes six and seven. On the links page on my website, you can find a link to our online bookstore where you can pick up copies directly. Perfect. Everyone should go check that out. Thank you, Alan, for joining us. My absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I'm happy to talk Sherlock Holmes anytime. Be sure to join us next quarter as we take a look at the last episode of season three, The Six Napoleons, and the first episode of season four, The Sign of the Four, as aired on ITV in England. Thanks again, Alan. Thank you. Time for getting the handsome cab. I think he's uh, just waiting outside. So That's right. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye. 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 How takes Thornycroft? No, no, no. I'm talking about Priory. How I'm just looking at the saying? word Thornycroft. Pat would have never made it out of here alive. <laughs> How do you say uh, Holmes is oh, Professor what? I don't understand how I'm saying it wrong. It's Moriarty. <laughs> this is Moriarty. <laughs> Moriarty? That yes. sounds weird. Uh, the way you say it always sounds like a, a, a five ninety nine <laughs> special I could buy at the Olive Garden. <laughs> anyway, we better get this done. Your Alice could get mad at us. Nine times. No, nine German for no. No, oh, he was not involved. I was just, you know, Ferris Bueller. Like, nine times? Nine <laughs> times. <laughs> I can be found on Twitter. Twitter? Twitter. It's when you tweet only <laughs> in the cold month. <laughs> but you're my favorite. <laughs> Kathy, would you like me to tell you about my hike that I took through the Swiss Alps? Shut <laughs> up, Jerry. Shut up. It was really cool. We went through Austria, Switzerland. <laughs> 